Good evening, church. Good evening. You're very, very welcome to our service here this evening at Living Hope Belfast. Church, if you'd like to stand to your feet, we're going to worship together.
do declare that in this place this evening, God, that you are worthy, that you are exalted far above everything else. None above you, none before you. There is no one like you. Help us to remember as we sing your praises that you alone deserve all the glory and the honor and the praise. It is not about us. It is not about humans. It is not about man. It is about the King of Kings. That you alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise this evening. You alone deserve that. Amen. Church, let's take our seats. Good evening. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. It says, what's an hour of a sense once again of the presence of God in worship? Let's just show appreciation for the worship team as I've led us in worship. Uh, just a, a couple of announcements uh, uh, quickly. The program uh, this week, uh, everything is on. If you're a visitor here tonight in our church, then we have something called After Glance, and that gives you the information of everything that's on in church for every age group. Uh, but we do just want to highlight a couple of things. The first one is on Tuesday night is the pastor's Bible study. Uh, we're back to that again. We're looking forward to meeting together as a church at half past seven. Uh, this morning I shared with you as part of the vision, we're going to be working our way through some of the gospel of Matthew, and we're just going to keep going uh, there. So on Tuesday evening, what we want you to do, Bible study, we encourage you to come last week to the prayer meeting. We encourage you to come to the Bible study on Tuesday night. Bring your Bibles, uh, bring your notepads, bring your pens and stuff and come expecting. If you want to know what we're studying, no better subject to start. The Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 1 to 9. We beheld his majesty. We're simply looking at the majesty of who Jesus is. So we want you to come on Tuesday evening. Uh, don't use anything else as an excuse. Come and fill a seat here in church, ready to study the Bible. Our job is to feed you, and we look forward to doing that on Tuesday evening. Uh, next Sunday morning is a very special morning in church because it is our academy graduation. Uh, the academy is run by Jackie and Valerie Roberts, and there are lots of people in the church who do uh, quite a few of the four-week courses over the course of a year. And we always like to have the graduation service in church. So next Sunday morning, this is a special uh, morning for all of those who are going to get their certificates and other things that are happening next Sunday morning. So we'd love you to be there to support the people uh, that are getting that. There's a lovely sense of the presence of God and God is moving in our church at the moment. It says, I'm already looking forward to next Sunday. It's already looking forward to it. not do anything this week. I'm just going to wait for next Sunday. Okay. So I might do that. I'm a pastor anywhere one day. So I'll do that. So next Sunday morning, please come along. And then finally, the Maids of Honor Conference is happening the first Saturday in October. If you haven't got your tickets yet, please get your ticket uh, tonight there at the door. We're delighted tonight. Uh, Tim Bailey is going to be coming to bring us uh, the word. Let's show appreciation for Tim. <laughs> Our pastor forgot my favourite announcement. Kids' space is on at the back. <laughs> oh, did you? 
it's already started. Uh, any kids in the service, clear off. Any, any babies? There's a baby room there as well. So. And then it's good to see you all tonight gather. We do appreciate the faithfulness of God's people coming out Sunday by Sunday. I want to thank again our pastor for the opportunity uh, to bring God's word. And again, our worship team for leading us in those songs of praise. Just as we were singing there, I exalt thee. Uh, it took me right back to 1986. We went to the Assemblies of God conference in Minehead. It took me mom, my mom over to be prayed for there. Uh, having, she'd suffered cancer already for a number of years, and she was just in a, in a very, very uh, difficult situation. She was in a wheelchair at that time, 47. Remember wheeling around the camp in the wheelchair and up and down curbs and ramps and stuff, and uh, and we took her to be prayed for. And at one of the evenings, we sang that, For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. And in the words of George Wesley, I was lost in wonder, love, and praise. As we sang that beautiful song, I exalt thee. There was actually a, a, a young girl on the platform, and she was playing a flute during that, or a clarinet, or some instrument like that. And she was completely away on her own, and they let her go. And it was beautiful as she played, I exalt thee. I still remember vividly who was preaching. It was a man called Benson Idahosa, and I couldn't get a seat. I was standing on a table right at the back, and as we sang, I exalt thee, God did something in my life that reverberates right to this very night, and as Rebecca and the others led us in that tonight, I was right back there in Minehead, 1986. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll come around God's word. Father, we thank you again for, as has already been prayed, the sweet sense of your presence from this morning until now. We thank you that you are amongst us. We thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. And we have sought, Lord, to exalt your name in song. And we seek now to exalt your name as we gather around your word with an obedient and an expectant heart. So, Lord, open our hearts, we pray, for without you we can do nothing. What is my voice? What are these thoughts? What is the English language to those who are dead and sin and lost without Christ? But we know, Lord, when you speak, you raise the dead, you set men and women free, you bring life and light and clarity and strength. And so, Lord, for that we pray tonight in the lovely and precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've just one verse tonight. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14. And verse 14, uh, before we read the verse, I just want to say tonight by way of introduction, for anyone to suggest that the Bible is a boring book uh, reveals the fact that they have either never read the Bible, nor having read the Bible, they don't understand the Bible. Because here in 2 Samuel chapter 14, we find ourselves watching King David. He undoubtedly was Israel's greatest king. We look at this man as he begins to feel now the consequences of his own sin and disobedience. It begins now to tumble in upon him. There's been in this man's life adultery, murder, deceit, all of that has resulted in toxic, fractured family relationships. 
You see again, brothers and sisters, these scriptures do not airbrush in any way the characters that are contained within its pages. They are presented to us unfiltered. The Bible contains the stories of the lives that God has chosen, people that God has used, and we see them in Scripture at their best. And we see them in Scripture at their worst. We see their highs and we see their lows. Part of the punishment of David's sin, God told David through the prophet Nathan that he would rise up against him evil from his own house. You see, brothers and sisters, tonight listen carefully and make no mistake about it. God in his great grace and mercy had forgiven David's adultery. He had forgiven David's murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. But the consequences of those actions, the consequences of his adultery, his murder of Uriah, those consequences were to follow him for the rest of his life. I think it was Alec Mateer who said repentance, it's like fetching a stone that has been thrown into a lake. Fair enough, he said, you can go and retrieve the stone, but the ripples will go on spreading. And that's what happened. And what happens as we come to this chapter is simply this. David's eldest son, Amnon, had raped his stepsister, Tamar. And then her brother, Absalom, after nourishing hatred and vengeance and bitterness for two years, murdered Amnon when he was a guest in his house. Absalom ran away. He fled the country, fearing the wrath and the anger of his father David, who I'm sure was conflicted by his son. On the one hand, wanting him back. On the other hand, knowing that as king and judge, he may have to decide in his son's execution. Joab, David's commander, he saw the dilemma in David's heart, and he sought to solve that dilemma. In a strange way, he sent to a place called Tekoa for a wise woman. He told her to come before David and pretend to be a grieving, desolate widow. She pretended to be grieving over her two sons. One had murdered the other, and now she was being persecuted by relatives who demanded the death of her remaining son. And she comes in before David in 2 Samuel 14 and told her her story, told him her story, and she gave before David the performance of her life. And David swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And he promised to protect the life of his son. And at that point, she turned to David pointing out his inconsistency in seeking to protect her son, but unwilling to restore Absalom, who had run away, failing to restore Absalom to a place of favor. And it's here that she says the words of our text. In 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 14, she says, David, we must all die. We are like water that is spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. 
He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Her argument with David was simply this, David, Amnon is dead. We all die sometime. Amnon is dead. Stop the grieving for Amnon. You have a son who has been banished. Amnon is dead. And like water that is spilt in the ground, he's not coming back. You don't surely claim to have a higher sense of justice than God. I mean, after all, David, God devises a means whereby the banished can be restored to himself. Her argument prevailed with David. Absalom was brought back. Unforgiven. Unpunished. But Absalom was unrepentant and unashamed. And that's another sermon for another time. I want us to focus just for a few minutes tonight on verse 14. Because I was thinking about this verse last week and I thought that is a strange verse. It contains more truth than I think even this wise woman from Tekoa realized. Four great truths in this verse that you and I would do well never to forget. And so it's very simple tonight. 2 Samuel 14, 14. Four truths I must never forget. What are they? Number one, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. Number two, life is irrevocable. Number three, God is impartial. And number four, salvation is incredible. Death is inevitable. Life is irrevocable. God is impartial. Salvation is incredible. So first of all then, death is incredible. Or sorry, death is inevitable and incredible. That's for those of you that were listening there. I made a mistake there. Death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. I don't know when. I don't know how it will happen. But unless Christ returns, whether it be at home or in hospital, whether painfully or peacefully, whether by disease or by accident, with or without warning, somebody, somewhere, will pronounce me dead. It's the ultimate statistic, isn't it? The figures are in and they won't change. One out of one dies. And I actually had prepared this before the Queen classed away. So don't be thinking, I oh, doing this because the Queen. It's not. I mean, irrespective of what has happened in the past few days, we know that to be true. Death in the Bible, brothers and sisters, is dealt with not just as a, a physical event, but when the Bible speaks about death, the Bible deals with death as a whole realm that stands in conflict with life. You see, the Bible speaks about spiritual death and physical death and eternal death. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. You and I are all born into this world spiritually dead. We are. We are born, as I've told you many times, we are born with one big blind eye to God's things and one big clenched fist in God's face. 
We are born rebels. We are born disobedient. We are born with a built-in animosity toward God. That's why people, by and large, are disinterested. God is like a spare tire in the boot. They're glad he's there, but hopefully they'll never need to use him. But if they're in difficulty, they will call on him. We're born that way spiritually dead. And that's why the Bible says we must be born again. You see, brothers and sisters, the tragedy is this. When, when physical death and spiritual death combine, it leads to eternal death in a place that the Bible describes as hell. Oh, we're all touched by the physical events. We know that, we're familiar with that. Many of us tonight, I'm sure, if not all of us, have painful, maybe even puzzling recollections of our first encounter with the uh, physical aspect of death. I can vividly remember mine. It was 1976, a Monday night, I'd been in my friend Edwards. We were playing with soldiers. And as a wee boy, I was called over to McGranny's in number 20, Ballysill and Crescent. And there I witnessed my mom cry for the first time. I couldn't understand why it was, really. And then the blinds were drawn. And then aunties and uncles and relatives began to arrive. They began to speak in hushed tones. And then I noticed that McGranda was not in his favorite chair. I could no longer go up into the bedroom and see him. I would no longer steal his cola cubes or sit on his knee and watch pot black. He told me Granda had passed away. They said Granda had gone to heaven. And all of you tonight, like me, will have memories of the external, the external trappings of the physical event that, that confront us with this aspect of death. See, brothers and sisters, we know death is inevitable. And even though we know it to be true, we don't want it to be true. You know, everybody else is getting older. I'm not. Everybody else's hair is turning gray or falling out. Mine's not. Everybody else can't run as fast as they used to be able to do on the treadmill. I can. I'm deceiving myself. We do our best to dull our minds from the actuality of that one event for which we all need to prepare. And some do it with humor. It was Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And some do it with bravado. I think, brothers and sisters, the last taboo in conversation isn't religion or politics, it's death. If you hang around hospitals at all, I'm not suggesting that any of you are bored and you just go and hang around hospitals. But in pastoral ministry for many years, I was in hospitals all the time. And if you're in hospitals at all, to any degree, you realize that you don't need convincing of that fact. You know, families bravely soldier on, refusing to discuss death with a dying relative. Doctors stealing themselves to tell the patients that the end is in sight. And they find refuge in, in slogans and, and, and cliches and, and false cheer. Listen, brothers and sisters, both the Old and the New Testaments are united in their witness. We must all die sometime. The New Testament says it is appointed unto men once to die. Death is inevitable. Secondly, life is irrevocable. Irrevocable simply means it can't be changed, it can't be reversed, it, it can't be recovered, it is final. 
Death is inevitable. Life is irrevocable. Isn't that what she says? She says, we are like water that is spilt on the ground that, that, that just can't be gathered up again. And what a graphic picture of life, isn't it? Life cannot be recalled. I mean, if I take this glass of water and pour it out here on this carpet, all the scientists in the world couldn't put that water back into that glass. We're like water that is spilt in the ground that can't be gathered up again. Do you remember Cher? It's actually our final song, If I Could Turn Back Time. It's not our final song. In case any of you are watching on YouTube, you think, that's it, I'm done now. Remember that song, If I Could Turn Back Time? If I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you, and you'd stay. We understand that sentiment, don't we, to turn back time? Try and undo some of the things we've done. Definitely try not to say some of the things we've said. It's the old poem, isn't it so true? If all that we say in a single day, with never a word left out, were written each night in clear black and white, it would make strange reading, no doubt. And there just suppose... Our eyes should close. We would read the whole record straight through. And wouldn't we sigh? And wouldn't we try a great deal less talking to do? And I more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if half that we say in a single day were to remain forever unsaid. We can't take it back. We can't go back. See, brothers and sisters, there's many a man would give his right arm to undo what he's done. You see, brothers and sisters, life can't be recalled. And life being irrevocable, it passes us by so quickly. Job said, your life is faster than a weaver's shuttle. Had he known what it was, he would have said, your life is faster than a poet fired from a garden. Listen, brothers and sisters, the brevity of life has to be faced. We don't like to face it, but the scriptures call us to face it. Face it, not in order that we might be morbid, or to manipulate us, or to create within us undue alarm. And I, I, I hope I'm not morbid. I don't think I'm morbid. I'm a kind of a happy sort of a guy. I think even joyful at times. But, you know... It's not to manipulate us or to make us morbid. The Bible calls us to consider the brevity of life in order that we might be sensible. We understand that as well. You don't need me to point any of this out to you. You know when you're five. So our daughter tonight is five. So when you're five and you're waiting on your birthday to come around, didn't it seem like an age as you waited for it? Do you know why that is? Because when your birthday came around, 20% of your life had passed from four to five. It was 20% of the life that you'd lived. When you turn 50 and your birthday arrives, boy, it was just like you were 49 two weeks ago. And the reason for that is because only 2% of your life had passed. See, there's something within the biological clock of men and women that addresses this and understands this, even if in our hearts we try to deny it. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to number our days. 
you want to do that? Do you want to do that tonight? Just for a laugh. Let's do it. In the Bible, a year was about 360 days. So if I live 70 years, it is 25,200 days. I'm 53. Hard to believe, isn't it? See, I tell you the hard paper, Ryan. You look 63. I'm 53. So I have lived 19,080 days. You take that away from 25,200 days, it's 6,120 days until I'm 70. Not a lot. 6,120 days. Say, Tim, I'm 20. Well, you've lived 7,200 days. 7,200 of your 25,200 days are gone. If you're 40 tonight, just double it, 14,400 days. We had a man told us last week he was 64 in October. And I thought, I'm sure his wife was going to say, I'm going to still love you when you're 64. <laughs> Will you still love me? Will you still need me when I'm 64? Well, if you're 64 in October... You've lived 23,040 days. So in 2,160 days, Michael Totten, you will be 70. <laughs> 2,160 days. You say, Tim, I'm 73, I'm 82. You're snookered. <laughs> See, brothers and sisters, I, I have lived 19,080 days, Bible days. Not a single one of those days can be recalled. Not a day, not an hour, not a moment, none of it. It's gone. Life is irrevocable. Many years ago, walking around Oxford University, I didn't go there, I was just visiting. <laughs> It just wasn't a big thing. Somebody from a working class, working class house in Ballysill in Oxford. I did on. The only Oxford you know is Oxford brogues. But then, walking around Oxford, and there was a sundial there, and around the sundial it said, tender teens, thrilling twenties, teachable thirties, fiery forties, forceful fifties, serious sixties, Solemn 70s, aching 80s, death, the sword, God. Death is inevitable. Life is irrevocable. Thirdly, God is impartial. Don't panic tonight. These points are really short. God is impartial. In the middle of verse 14, she says, this wise woman from Tekoa, she says to David, God will not take away life. It's a difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew. Uh, some of the commentators disagree, but she's suggesting that God, even God, does not just arbitrarily take away life. I think the King James Version renders it, uh, neither does God respect any person. In other words, God is not impartial. Our God is impartial, sorry. He treats everyone the same. 
And we know, brothers and sisters, that the world of men and women and boys and girls reject that. But the work of Christ on the cross reveals that, that God is impartial. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, speaking about the angels that sinned, uh, Peter tells us that God spared not the angels that sinned, but threw them out of heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, God did not spare Noah's world when it sinned, but he drowned it with the flood. So God did not spare the angels when they sinned. God did not spare Noah's world when it lived in constant rebellion. But here, brothers and sisters, is the wonder of God's impartiality. God spared not the angels that sinned. God spared not the world of Noah. Romans 8.32, God spared not his own son. God is inflexible in his justice. God spared not his own son, Romans 8.32, but delivered him up for us all. Delivered him up. Delivered him up to what? To the Romans? No. Delivered him up to the nails, to the spear, and to the mockery and to the abuse in one sense, yes. But the heart of the sufferings of Christ, brothers and sisters, were the sufferings of his heart. What men did to him was secondary to what God did on the cross when God laid upon his son all of his wrath against our sin. God spared not the angels that sinned. God spared not Noah's world. God spared not his own son. God is impartial. He is inflexible in his justice. You see, brothers and sisters, if God spared not his own son, when our sin was placed upon him on the cross, what hope do you have that he will spare you? And that brings me to my final point. Death is inevitable. Life is irrevocable. God is impartial. And here's your hope now. Salvation is incredible. Incredible. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 14, this wise woman from Tekoa says, she says, even God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Even God devises means. The means there that she's referring to were the cities of refuge. We don't have time to look at that tonight. You can read it for yourself in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and in Joshua. There were cities of refuge. And the city of refuge was a place to which someone could go for safety, for refuge, until their case could be properly heard, until it could be legally determined whether this person had committed murder or whether this was manslaughter, whether this crime was willful or whether it was accidental. So rather than him get caught in the field by the avenging relatives of the person that had died, this person was able to run to one of these cities of refuge. God had devised a means. If it was decided that it was manslaughter, then this fugitive, this refugee, was given protection within the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, and then he could go home to his own family, to his own city, to his own town, safe in the knowledge that he would never be harmed. So she was right when she said to David, she said, David, 
Absalom is away. Amnon is dead. Even the God that you serve provides refuge and provides protection until a case can properly be settled. God brings back the banished. God doesn't allow those that are banished, those that are outcasts, to remain outcasts. Brothers and sisters, those cities of refuge are a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he accomplished for us upon the cross at Calvary. There were many towns and villages in Israel, but not all of them offered protection. Not all of them gave the, uh, the refugee asylum, if you like. Only those towns that God had appointed. There were six of them, and there was three on either side of the River Jordan. Because you had to be able to get to them. You had to be able to get to them quickly. These cities, you had to be able to reach them within half a day. And so in order to help the people, in order to aid their convenience, there were three on this side of the Jordan and three on this side of the Jordan. God wanted people easy access to these cities of refuge. Listen, brothers and sisters, as we close. Your only means of refuge from the judgment of God upon your sin is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have told you many times and I will tell you again, there is no refuge from him, there is refuge in him. Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one name. One name. C.S. Lewis captured us in the silver chair. And I think it's Susie or Lucy, the wee young one is coming. She, she sees the lion lying by the stream and, and she's very thirsty, but, but she's afraid of the lion who is Aslan, again, the picture of Christ. And, and she comes and she says, do you eat little girls? And he said, I have eaten little girls, little boys. I have eaten kings and kingdoms and empires. But she was so thirsty. And she said, then I will just go to another stream. And Aslan looked at her and said, there is no other stream. Brothers and sisters, tonight there is no other stream. There's only one savior. There's only one way. There's a wee boy sitting in Zion Tabernacle listening to Uncle Alec. I think he knew about three children's courses. And he beat that drum to death. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a door that is opened that you may go in at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, there's only one way of salvation. It's the way that God devised in his great mercy and love. God came down in the person of his son and he lived a life that we should have lived but couldn't. And he died a death that we ought to have died but didn't. And then his own son, he laid our sins on Jesus. And Jesus carried them right up to the cross and he died there under the wrath of God as a punishment for my sin. And listen, the power of his death and resurrection is such that it can do with all your work, all your religion, all your good behavior, all your respectability, all, all of that can never do. It can cleanse your heart. It can heal your conscience. It can give you a righteousness that's not your own. And one day it will enable you to live in the immediate presence of God for all eternity. Who wouldn't want that? See the God who made us. To look in his face and tell him what he's meant to us. 
to be there unafraid, to be there not consumed by his holiness, to be there and not immediately fall down as dead before him. On that day, because of his righteousness, he will give to us a, a much more resilient body than we've got tonight. Listen, brothers and sisters, here we are gathered in this building. As God looks upon our lives, he sees us walking one of two pathways, either a broad road that leads to death or a narrow road that leads to life. And Jesus Christ is here tonight to give you life. As we close tonight, if you follow the life of the Lord Jesus through the Gospels and stand beside him and watch him and listen to him as he meets individuals, listen to him as he answers their questions, as he speaks to them again and again, what does he speak to them about? Life. To Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Here's a man who was physically alive, and the Lord put his hand upon him and said, Nicodemus, you're not really alive, son. You need to become alive. You need a spiritual birth. To a woman at the well whose life was a mess, five husbands and a living lover, a disaster when it came to relationships. No man would speak to her at all, at least not out of pure motives. And Lord Jesus sat down with her and said, can I have a drink? She said, why are you a Jew asking me a Samaritan for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew who you're talking to, you would ask for me and I would give you a drink and you'd never be thirsty again. Oh, lovely, isn't it? You'd never be thirsty again. And on the night before his death, on a few hours he would die. And he prays in Gethsemane and I have the privilege of standing in that spot and reading these words there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know that's what most of us took away from the vision. We're all going to Israel and the pastor's paying for it. I, <laughs> well, that's what I heard. That's what I heard between the lines and, and the white spaces. But I've had the privilege of being here. And in this spot he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son also may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, listen to this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, as we finish those cities, as I've said, had to be half a day away. You had to be able to get to those cities within half a day. The Lord Jesus is not half a day away. The Lord Jesus is here. He's closer to you tonight than your very skin. He's been up and down these aisles. He's moved amongst us today. And he's here tonight. In Psalm 34, he has promised to be near to the brokenhearted, to save those that are crushed in spirit. Before I left the house tonight, I read Psalm 46, that God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Not just a present help in time of trouble, a very present help in time of trouble. Will you not accept his invitation tonight? You see, brothers and sisters, we all die sometime. We are like water that is spilt on the ground that can't be gathered again. Yet God doesn't take away life. Even God has devised a means whereby the banished don't remain outcasts. Death is inevitable. 
Life is irrevocable. God is impartial. Salvation is incredible because of the people it embraces and the person it exalts. May God help you tonight to accept this invitation. Let's all pray. And as we do, the worship team will come forward and lead us in a final song of praise. If you're in the meeting tonight and you're not saved and you would like to be or you would want prayer, uh, there's many folks here who would be too delighted to speak with you, to take the time to try, if possible, to answer your questions and to pray with you. Please don't rush out, and we trust the Lord will deal with each and every one of our hearts. Father, again tonight we thank you for your word. It is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so tonight it is upon your word that we rely. Raise the dead. Deal with hearts. Speak by your spirit. We thank you for every single person in this house tonight. Not here by accident. Not here by coincidence. But here by divine appointment. Oh, Lord, give them grace to accept this invitation. We realize that nobody deserves to hear the gospel twice when only the, half the world has heard it once. Lord, there's people here tonight and they've heard the gospel again and again and again. Lord, open up hearts. Give to each and every one of us a growing affection for Jesus Christ. For it's in his lovely name we pray. Amen.